Oh, the evolutionist said it just happened by chance. Given enough time, he will say anything can happen. That's like saying you can take a bunch of monkeys and put them behind a computer keyboard and let them bang out keys for millions of years and sooner or later out will come a Shakespearean sonnet. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you know that salvation is exclusively dependent on the work of Christ, who took the penalty for our sins upon himself by his death on a cross. We know our salvation is secure by our faith in his atoning work of grace. But the thought may have crossed our mind, what would have happened if we had never heard God's redemptive plan of salvation? Or what about the millions of people who live in remote areas of the world and don't have access to a Bible? Well, that's what we're looking at today in our ongoing study of the Book of Romans as Dr. Brogy presents a message entitled, Are the Untold Billions Really Lost? Take your Bibles with you this morning. Turn to the Book of Romans, Chapter 1. If you're here for the first time, you'll be interested to know we just a few weeks ago began a verse-by-verse study of this great epistle. And our passage this morning answers a very important question that both Christians and non-Christians alike have asked. When I was a campus minister for over a decade, I was very often asked this question, most of the time by people who are hostile to the gospel. So-called atheists and agnostics often ask this question, those who want to defy the truth, to try to give an excuse why they shouldn't have to believe. Sometimes lost people ask this question who are searching for the truth. And certainly many sincere and serious Christian people ought to ask and answer this question. It's the question, what happens to people who die without ever having heard the name of Jesus Christ? Are they lost and forever doomed to hell? For people who have never heard even the name of Jesus Christ, is there some other way for them to be saved? Can a Muslim or a Buddhist, or a Confucianist be saved by his faith, like we receive salvation by faith in Jesus Christ? Can there be more than one way to heaven? If there's any, I suppose, single apologetic question you will be asked most, it is this one. And you need to know how to answer it. Now let me just say definitively, there is only one way to heaven, and it is through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, No one comes to the Father but through me. Peter, with great dogmatism, said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ did not teach that he was a good way to heaven. He didn't even teach that he was the best way to heaven. He said he was the only way to heaven. And let me say, if Jesus Christ is not the only way to heaven, then he's not a way at all. Because he claimed to be the only way to heaven. If he made such a claim and it is not true, then he is a liar. If he is a liar, he is a sinner. And if he is a sinner, he cannot be your savior or anyone else's. And so we need to be able to ask and answer this very important question. What about those individuals who have never even once heard the name of Jesus Christ? How can God be just to condemn them to hell for having never believed in a Savior in whom they have never heard? 
Well, this passage, among other issues, is going to address that question today. Now, we left off last time in verse 16, but I want to get a running start. So I want us to begin reading in verse 14, Romans chapter 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. When I went to buy my wife an engagement ring several decades ago, we went into a store, and the man turned on a bright white light above our head and then took out a beautiful piece of black velvet cloth and laid those gems on the cloths, uh, on the black velvet. And he did that because he wanted us to see the brilliance, the hue, the fine cuts, the beauty, the luster of that diamond. And likewise, we cannot really fully appreciate the glorious gospel that God has given his people to share until we see the black backdrop of sin that is laid behind it. And so the Apostle Paul is dealing with the doctrine of condemnation. Beginning in Romans 1.18 all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20, he's like a prosecuting attorney in a courtroom. He, under the inspiration of the Spirit, shows that every single individual, wherever they may live on the planet, is a vile, helpless sinner worthy of the wrath of God. And in order to secure a guilty verdict against us, he arraigns every possible group you can think, and he comprises them in three large groups of people. In Romans 1, 18 to 32, he deals with the Gentile world. He deals with the idolatrous, immoral, hardcore pagan. And he will show that even these people who have never heard the plan of salvation stand guilty and worthy of the wrath of God. When he comes into the second chapter, he will first deal with the uh, sanctified sinner, so to speak, the uh, religious sinner, the moral sinner, the man who, though he may not ascribe to the, to the dictates of the Bible, he, by the things he says, does not practice what he preaches, and so he too is guilty. In the second half of Romans 2, he will deal with the Jew. He will deal with this man who has been given great privilege from God, even the scriptures themselves, to be the keepers of the scripture. And he will show that they have not lived up to that responsibility and privilege that God has given them and that they too are guilty. And then in the third chapter, he will take all of humanity together and say there's none righteous, there is not even one, and all are deserving the wrath of God. And so he will marshal every bit of evidence that God the Spirit can give him, and he will bring a guilty conviction. 
And so first here in Romans 1, 18 through 32, he will deal with the depraved Gentile world. And he will show how he was guilty. And with every group, his procedure will be the same. He will show that every man has some knowledge of God, and that knowledge makes him inexcusable. That no one can claim innocence before God because no one can claim ignorance about God. Even those who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And so this morning I want to give you four principles that deal with the unevangelized billions of the world. If you're using your note-taking outline, the very first principle I want us to consider is that all men have some light about God. All men have some light about God. All people, no matter where they are, wherever they live on this planet, have some light, some knowledge, some revelation of God. Now, whenever you see the word light in the Bible, if it's not being used of literal physical light, it's being used metaphorically or symbolically. And when it's used symbolically, it's used in two different ways. Morally, light is purity and darkness is evil. So, for instance, in Isaiah 5, when he speaks of the people of Judah, who'd become so immoral, Isaiah said, they call evil good and good evil. They substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. And so there, morally, light is described as uh, holiness and darkness is described as sin. But there's a second way symbolically or metaphorically light is used. And it's used to describe revelation or information that God has given about himself. The psalmist, for instance, says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Peter will say in his second epistle that the word of God is a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, while the Apostle Paul does not technically use the word light in our text this morning, he uses the opposite term in verse 21, darkness, when he describes the fact that their foolish heart is being darkened. He also uses a synonym for light in verse 18, namely the word truth, as he describes those who suppress the truth or the light they have. And so to demonstrate that all men have some light, that testifies against them, he brings two witnesses to the stand. Two witnesses that show that no one is excusable, that all men have some information about God Almighty. And the very first witness he brings to the stand is the witness of creation. Look, if you will, at verse 18. He writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, we're going to come back to this verse in great detail in a few weeks. But right now, I want you to underscore in your thinking that word, suppress. He's describing people who resist, who squelch, the King James says they hold down the truth. And that is the essence of all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The essence of all sin is to try to get rid of God. And since that is absolutely impossible, the best man can do is act like God doesn't exist. And so he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Now, Paul's going to amplify on that thought in verse 19. He gives us the reason why man is guilty and under God's wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Why? Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. 
Now the them that he's speaking of in the context are those described in verses 21 through 33. These hardcore idolatrous pagans. These people who did not possess the truth of the Bible. They had no written Bible in their hand. But in spite of that, Paul is saying God has revealed himself even to them. That they have some light. Now you may reason in your own mind that they didn't have a chance, but God says it is evident to them. So exactly, how does God show himself to a person who has never had a Bible in his hand and who has never heard about the name of Jesus Christ? He explains, notice if you will, in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. The Bible is saying that from the visible world around us, anyone can tell that there is an invisible God. Why? Because since the creation of the world, God's attributes, God's power, and God's nature are plainly, clearly seen, being understood how? Through what has been made. The Bible is saying that everything that God has created in this world, every leaf, every flower, every drop of water, has a stamp on it made by God. And everyone who would simply use simple reasoning would have to come to that conclusion that there's a creator. I mean, everyone knows that from nothing comes nothing. Even the evolutionists who say that we evolved through an explosion of atoms, he has to ask and answer the question, well, where did the atoms come from? And where did this mass come from that exploded, that brought about the so-called evolutionary process? Everyone knows that out of nothing comes nothing. The only difference is that the atheist and the agnostic and the evolutionist says that nothing times nobody equals everything. And so our God is simply saying here in verse 20 that if you have a brain sitting on your shoulders that you know that there is a creator by the fact that he has made a creation. One 17th century Puritan commentary says God has left large footprints throughout his creation. And so again here in verse 20 he is saying that he is clearly seen being understood through the things that he has made. When the Apostle Paul meets those idol-worshiping Gentiles in the city of Lystra on his missionary journey, he says, listen, there is only one true God. And this one true God, he said in Acts 14, did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. David speaks of the same truth in the Old Testament in Psalm 19. Listen, the heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day by day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. King David, do these stars speak? Does the creative work of God talk to me? Verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. There's no vocal sound, David says, but their message is loud and clear. Their line, he says in verse 4, has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the earth. In them he has placed the tent for the sun. And that is precisely what the Apostle Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 1. The unmistakable evidence of God is seen in the heavens and the earth in which he has created. 
Do you know that the temperature of the sun is 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit? Of course, we enjoy the warmth of the sun that is placed exactly so that it's not too hot or not too cold. In fact, scientists tell us that if there was just a 50 degree difference in the sun, that the earth, either up or down, the earth would either be too cold to live on or too hot to be able to survive. So why is the sun 12,000 degrees hot? Why not 24,000 degrees hot? Why not 2,000 degrees hot or any other number you can pick? And why is the earth placed at exactly the right distance from the sun? They say if there was just a five-mile variance between the earth was in either direction, it would either be too cold or too hot. And why does the earth spin around its axis 300 spin around its axis 24 hours once a day and 365 days why does it go all the way around the sun why doesn't it go around the sun just 36 times a year if it went around 36 times a year then days and nights would be 10 times longer than they are and due to radiational cooling it would either be too cold or radiational heating it would be too hot to be able to live you think that all happened by chance david thinks not the heavens are telling the glory of god and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands oh the evolutionist said it just happened by chance given enough time he will say anything can happen that's like saying you can take a bunch of monkeys and put them behind a computer keyboard and let them bang out keys for millions of years and sooner or later out will come a Shakespearean sonnet. Listen, their theory is harder to believe. The monkey story is harder to believe than what God has given us here in his word. But they want you to believe, given enough time, anything can happen. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. The Bible never once ever tries to prove the existence of God. And many of these Christian apologists are foolish for doing the very thing that God does not do. God, in fact, devotes one half of one verse in all the scripture to atheism. It's repeated once, twice in Psalm 14 and again in Psalm 53. It says there, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The Bible doesn't begin with a rationale for God. It never tries to prove its existence, God's existence. But a sheet bara Elohim, viet ha'aretz. In the beginning, God created the earth, and He created Hashemayim, the heavens in the earth. God knew exactly what He was doing. He said it all in the opening verse in the Scripture. The fool has said in his heart. There is no God. Actually, literally, the Hebrew text reads, the fool is said in his heart, no God. If you're sitting down for lunch this afternoon and someone hands you broccoli or cauliflower and you say, no cauliflower, you're not saying cauliflower doesn't exist. You're saying, no cauliflower, please. That's what the fool is saying. No God, please. I don't want any. The reason he doesn't want to believe in God is because he doesn't want any of God. The reason he cannot find salvation is the same reason a thief cannot find a policeman. He's not interested. And so according to the word of God, the problem is not intellectual. It's not in the head. It is in the heart. Now, I know that there are people today who talk about how foolish we are as Christians for believing the Bible. 
D.L. Moody, I, I quoted him a few weeks ago, and I had a number of people ask, who's D.L. Moody? That's the day we live in. It's okay. D.L. Moody was a great evangelist, the Billy Graham, really, of the 19th century. And when he stood up to preach on one occasion, just before he got up while a soloist was singing, he was handed a note from the back, and, and Usher gave it to him. And he thought it must have been important, but it was actually from a skeptic. And he opened the note, and on it was simply one word in all capital letters, FOOL. He went to the pulpit. He said, I received a note from someone in the audience. There's one word on it, FOOL. He said, it's a most unusual note. Many times, he wrote, I have received letters from people who have forgotten to sign their names, but this is the first time a man has signed his name and forgotten to write the note. <laughs> the Bible never tries to prove the existence of God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The creation alone is enough to declare the existence of God. The evolutionists say, well, you Christians just believe that by faith. Yes, we do. We believe it because God is a reliable God who has shown himself to be trustworthy. Yes, I accept the fact that God literally, actually, just as he said, just as Moses affirmed in Exodus 20, created this world in six 24-hour days with no gaps or space in between. Look, he could have done it in six seconds or no time at all if he wanted to. God's creation points to the fact that there is a creator. And so Paul is saying here that the invisible God has made himself known through the creation. Just as the artist reveals himself in the things that he paints, even so the divine artist reveals himself in the creation he has made. No man can say, is there a God? Does God exist? Because the heavens and the earth shout the existence of God. That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now, Paul's not finished with his argument. Like a prosecuting attorney, he brings a second witness to the stand. He brings the witness of conscience. Now, we just read in verse 19, God made it evident within them. Underline those two, two words, within them. For God made it evident to them. In the same verse, he's speaking of two witnesses. That which is evident within them, that speaks of conscience, that which is evident to them, that speaks of creation. Now in a few popular translations that paraphrase a little bit more, that make it a little more re readable, they say to them twice. But the Greek New Testament in every text says the same thing as reflected here in the NAS or the King James. Within them and to them. And that's important because he's speaking of two distinct witnesses, both creation and conscience. Now, we'll come to it in our next time together, but the rest of the chapter describes that awful expression of sin that the hardcore pagan who is moving away from God shows himself. But even the hardcore pagan, even the idolatrous, worshiping Gentile never loses his reality that there's a God, for he will say in verse 32, for although they know God, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. They still know the ordinance of God. How? 
because of conscience within. Now the Apostle Paul will elaborate further when we come to the second chapter, but let's just take a sneak preview. Turn your page over one to the second chapter of Romans and look, if you will, at verse 14. He's going to illustrate in chapter 2 this point that man has evidence within them. In 2.14, that verse opens for when Gentiles. Now, when you see the word Gentiles in the Bible, understand it's used in one of two ways. Sometimes it's used to describe all the peoples of the world who are not Jewish. Or sometimes it's used to describe a pagan. Someone who wants nothing really to do with God. In some English translations, instead of translating ethne or goyim, Gentile, they will just translate it pagan. They're interpreting it. But it's the same word and context always shows it. So for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the term Gentile, not in reference to a non-Jew, but as a pagan. He said, for if, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Yes, they do, implied answer. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Yes, they do. Even the pagans do that. And so Paul here is using the term in that sense of the unsaved multitudes. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is they do not have a Bible, they do not have the word of God, they don't know even that there is a book called the Bible, when they instinctively do the things of the law, these not having the law are a lot of themselves. How so? In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Do you see the rationale that God is giving us through the Apostle Paul? Not only has God given the Bible in the written page, God only, not only has the Bible here, he has it here as well. He has it in their hearts. God wrote his truth into their hearts. And so a man knows the difference between what's fair and what's unfair, what's just and what's unjust. How does he know that? Because God wrote his law into his heart. And the law of God is a reflection of what God is. And God has made us, unlike the animal world, in his image. And so their conscience, Paul says, accuses them when they do what is wrong or it defends them when they do what is right. Well, whom have they pleased or displeased? The God who made them. And so there's the outward visible revelation of God seen in the brooks and the birds and the butterflies and the bees and the rocks, the rills and the hills and everything that God has made. And then there is that inward evidence that God has given through the conscience as God has written his law into our hearts. So we see God in creation and we feel God in our conscience. God's truth is evident in both creation and in conscience. And tomorrow when we continue our message entitled, Are the Untold Billions Really Lost? We'll see that how people respond to the evidence God gives about himself will be instrumental in whether additional evidence and information is provided. There is a principle that revealed light responded to leads to more light, but light rejected leads to darkness. We're in a study of the book of Romans, and if you'd like to hear today's study or any of the messages in this series, Use the Search the Scriptures app for smart devices or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 
and requesting program ROM4. Tomorrow, part two of Are the Untold Billions Really Lost? Join us then as we search the scriptures.